media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Come upon a time today where we kind of look at a story uh, of an event, uh, this account of Peter, that I think is very familiar to a lot of people. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you might have some knowledge of this just because it's a story that's somewhat familiar. And uh, and yet I think sometimes there's a lot to be learned about this, especially in personal application, that sometimes we would miss when we just kind of look at a storyline. Now, again, one of the, the big battles that we're always going to face, guys, biblically when we're studying God's Word, is not just to gather points of information, but truly see that this is for the purpose of transformation, that we would just think more biblically, that we would just act more biblically. It's not just so that we can acquire facts. Have you ever met somebody before? And this, we're not trying to be judgmental, but have you ever met somebody who really knows a lot of facts about the Bible, but their, their life really isn't, doesn't look like a picture of transformation? Uh, to biblical teaching, and we can be that people, okay? We can be that person. So it's one of those things, information does not always equate transformation. And yet today, if we were standing before holy God in in a way that we could verbalize and and hear back to him directly, I promise you that he would, if we said, uh, what do you want us to kind of get out of this morning? Information, more information, more data, or to have a transformed heart and mind. And without a doubt, biblically, I know that God would say, man, I'll transform. Romans 12, too, that you just think differently. You begin to act more and more and more like my son who saved you. And so that's our idea this morning. And, and yet we live in a world where we tell lies to ourselves and, and we kind of put things on other people that we don't always put those same kind of uh, decisions upon ourselves. Have you ever looked at somebody, for example, and said, man, that person needs to face reality? Have you ever done that before? And it can be in a lot of different aspects. It could be American Idol, and you're going, they can't even sing. They need to face reality. There's, they don't even have a voice. Why are they even on there? Or somebody else that thinks they're all that. Or maybe it's just something else where they're lying to themselves about something, and it's so obvious to everybody else in the room that they're kind of believing this lie. And so in the back of our mind, we kind of look at that person. And again, hopefully not trying to be judgmental. We're going, that man... That person needs to face reality. When we say that, it's usually because there's something so obvious to everybody else, and it seems to escape the person in question. And we begin to wonder, how can they not see that? Have you ever thought that of somebody? How can they not see that? If I really want to stir up trouble, have you ever thought about that about your spouse? How can they not see that? I mean, sometimes even the person you love so much, you're going, something is so clear to you, and yet whatever it is, maybe it's a financial thing, maybe it's a well, what you think is logical, maybe it's some other thing, and you're going, how can they not see that? Well, this morning we go and we begin to look at this time in Peter's life when Christ tells him that he's going to deny him three times. And it's something that Peter cannot comprehend. He cannot grasp. He cannot even begin to imagine And yet within hours, we see it completely fulfilled. The subject of our own sinfulness, folks, has always been a hard challenge. And when Christ tells Peter that he's going to deny him three times, one of the things that Peter has to try to grasp at that point is his own ability to not only disappoint God in Christ, but but to sin, to to rebel against something. And, And Peter just, it's not that he's just this arrogant fool. 
I know sometimes we kind of paint Peter in that light. I think he had a really big heart for Christ. I think he really was. He says today, I'll die for you. And I think that he really thought he would. And yet, what we will see as we begin to to look at all this is that uh, when we confront our own sinfulness, it's a real challenge. It's a real, real challenge. And and yet we're called to do this not just, uh, you know, on Sunday mornings, but the entirety of our life. When I was growing up, I, I... Sat under, I went to an independent Baptist church. My, my parents are Catholic. And so uh, my dad would drop me off uh, at, at this church. It just happened to be one of the closest ones. And it was an independent Baptist. And, and, and I don't know if you know anything about independent Baptists. I, I guess there's varieties of independent Baptists. But uh, straight and narrow was pretty much, you know, the moniker of the, of the church. You know, every church could be this the church of the straight and the narrow. And at least that's what they preached and not so much what they lived. And so I grew up and, and very much, you know, the, the, the pastor uh, preached from the word, I, I think. I, I don't remember expository sermons, but I just remember every week being confronted with sinful things. But here's the thing. Now, you got to remember, this is the late 60s, early 70s, okay, guys? And and it's a different style of preaching, especially in an independent Baptist church, than maybe what you've grown up with. And it was a different time. Not that that should matter. But basically, I grew up hearing about sin and sinfulness every week. But here's the problem with this. Listen very closely, because I don't want you to think that we shouldn't preach about sin. I'm a firm believer that we need to make it much more a part of our every uh, weekly gathering because it's reflected in the Word. But here's what I heard as an eight-year-old. The sins were gambling, adultery, and drinking, smoking. And they tied that together. Somehow if you drank, you smoked, you smoked, you drank, or something like that. And it was just one of those things. At that point, I'm going, okay, at eight years old, I haven't delved deeply into those things yet. And so I'm thinking, I come away from church every week going, these are bad, bad things. But I, I guess I'm halfway okay because I didn't really gamble this week, didn't do one act of adultery yet, and you know, wasn't even tempted by this whole drinking, smoking. I mean, at eight years old, since those were the classic sins that were preached week after week after week, I thought it was okay. What I wasn't taught there, and please get this, what I wasn't taught there is that I had the nature. I was a sinner. By my nature, not because I did one of those four things. Well, what's the difference? Big difference. Sometimes we think that we sin because, you know, as far as that we're sinners because we sin. And a great theologian one time said, no, no, we sin because we're sinners. In other words, it's our nature. From the very beginning, we are sinners. And we acknowledge that because when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, holy God, that nature was then born into their children and into every generation since then. One of the things that we don't like to hear about ourselves is that we're by nature sinners. And yet, folks, if you don't get that from the biblical record, if you don't get this from God's word, you're building upon a really false foundation. I mean, I I think that we could have an interesting discussion. I know we still have a lot of families out this morning because it's the end of the second fall break, and and many are gone this morning. But a lot of our young families, I I wonder if we went to mom and dad and, and, and asked, when do we teach children that they're sinners? 
I imagine that it would be a really good discussion. And some people go, well, you know, I don't think we need to put that heavy weight upon them when they're young. There'd be others that would say, no, they need to learn this from the very beginning. Now, here's what I believe. You don't have to agree with me, but here's what I believe. I, I think it should be as fast as they can do cognitive thought. Why? Because we want to destroy this child and, oh, I'm a sinner. No, no so that for, from the very, very, very beginning, they would understand the nature by which they exist in and their need for a Savior. And that they would be, that they would be able to get earlier and earlier and earlier in life this need for a Savior, this need for what God has provided. I love my grandchildren. And my grandchildren are prettier than your grandchildren. They're smarter than your grandchildren. They're faster and stronger than your grandchildren. Okay, you've got some really good ones. I I just know what I'm talking about, okay? And you know, one thing that I hope that my daughters and son-in-laws teach our grandkids from a very early age the biblical understanding of their sinfulness and their sinful nature. Why? Because I think that even that much more in the beginning of their lives that they're going to see the need of a Savior and they're going to see the sufficiency of God's supply of a Savior. Well, I mean, that's pretty old-fashioned. No, it's actually biblical, okay, guys? There's a difference between biblical and old-fashioned. Old-fashioned means, well, that was true at one time, but it's not true anymore, perhaps. We could maybe do that about old-fashionedness. But we can't say that in the same light with biblicalness. Because I promise you, a biblical truth from 5,000 years ago is a biblical truth today and will be 5,000 years from now. Biblical truth doesn't change. And so this isn't something, maybe it's kind of deemed old-fashioned. And Bobby, you know, we we need to worry about self-worth and self-esteem. Guys, I get all that. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but... I do have some logic. I'm just telling you, for the foundation of my grandchildren, for the foundation of my grandchildren, I pray that they know very early on that they are sinners and they're in need of a Savior. One of the first places I go in premarital counseling, very first session is we sit down. Hey, you're a sinner and you're going to marry a sinner. Because it changes everything. Do you want to find that out three years into the marriage? I mean, you'll find it out 30 seconds into the marriage in reality. But, you know, is that a reality that you want to come to later? Or how do you, if you have that as a foundation, hey, I'm a sinful person saved by the grace of God and that grace alone, and I'm marrying another sinful person saved by the grace of God, how does that build a foundation then of understanding and a need for one another to, to go before the throne of God for them on their behalf? Guys, it changes everything. So this foundational truth of our lives, you'll find it described differently in the Bible. Uh, some will say sinfulness, uh, some songs, some old songs. What a wretch is I? And a lot of people are really offended by that. Well, I am not a wretch. I may not be the best person in the world, but I am not a wretch. The Bible says that basically that our best day, our best day ever, Our best deeds ever are but a filthy rag before a holy God. See, we we don't understand holiness in its full capacity. And and so we really don't have a grasp on our sinfulness. And that those weren't just kind of missing the mark a little bit. We were aiming and we just barely kind of went off to the left or the right. No, how we are truly worlds apart. 
And until we know this gap, we will not know, we will not realize and know that Christ is the only way, but that He's also the sufficient way. As much as I really believe that Peter truly loved Jesus, I mean truly loved Jesus, what Peter needed to realize this night, what we need to realize in our lives, what I pray my grandchildren realize early on in their lives, is the truth of Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. Do you agree with that this morning? I mean, it's in the Bible, so kind of a leaded, loaded question there, but... Do you believe that as information or do you believe that as truly transformation? Has that reality transformed the way that you approach life? Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's not saying that we're just not God ourselves, but it says we fall short of his glory, his perfection, his holiness, that there is a gap there. And then the whole rest of the dilemma of life, basically, life's question is, how do we fill that gap? How do we measure this gap between our sinfulness and the holiness of God? And the Bible only points to one thing, and it's not religion. It's not trying really, really hard. It's not going out and helping your neighbor. Uh, a lot of those things that would be affirmed as good things in our lives are, are great and good. We don't make light of them, and the Bible doesn't make light of them. But what it makes much of is there, there's only one answer to this gap, guys. And that is that God clothed himself in flesh, dwelt among us, died a, a lamb's death, a sacrificial death on a cross. And in all that righteousness, he took on all of our sins. That's what's about to happen in this Gospel of Mark. It's Thursday night, if we understand that. They've just had the Passover meal. Uh, Judas has now left the fold. He's gone out to betray Jesus. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, and uh, the remaining uh, disciples are there in the upper room. They leave the upper room, and they go out to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. I was able to visit that uh, in Israel, and it's, it's amazing. There's some trees there. I think I've shared with you before. There's some trees there that are more than 2,000 years old. In other words, these trees were there when Christ was there. It was kind of remarkable to stand in that place. But that's what's going on. They're on the Mount of Olives. As they make their way to the garden, Jesus tells them that in the coming hours that all of them would fall away. All of them, not just Judas. I mean, can you imagine the remaining 11 after they've witnessed the betrayal of Judas? Do Do you think that that brought to them the conviction of their own sin? Or did it give them kind of a false sense of their own self righteousness? Which one would you draw? There's 12 of you. One blatantly denies, uh, uh, betrays Christ with a kiss. They arrest Jesus. You know, they're, they're, I mean, when you're going through all of this kind of stuff that in your mind, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, and they're looking around the room, what would you walk away with? A further conviction of your own sinfulness or a little bit of self-righteousness? Hey, I, at least I'm not that bad. And I would challenge you guys that that is our human dilemma. That really is part of a natural thought process. Man, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not like Judas. And yet Christ comes back and says, every one of you will fall away. Let's get into the scripture. Mark 14, verse 26 through 28. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written... 
And this is what should have been there. Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) For it is written. Whenever Jesus says, for it is written, and he's about to fulfill prophecy, we have, what, a 99.9% chance this come true? Or do we have a 100% chance that this is going to come true? Okay. So he's, and he, he quotes from Zechariah 13.7, and he says, you, um, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he quotes this Old Testament prophecy, and he kind of does it to the, the remaining 11, they said, you're going to desert me, you're going to run from me, you're going to deny me. And, and even with all this in their mind, in verse 28, Christ makes a promise. What is this promise? He makes two promises to them. He tells them, you're going to fall away, you're going to deny me, you, all of you are going to fall away, and yet here's my promise. As you break promises, here's the way I'm going to keep promises. And he says two things in verse 28. What is it? I'm going to be raised up. That is, I will come back to life, and I will go before you to Galilee. Fast forward a little bit. Did he keep his promise? <laughs> he does. Guys, this is the this first opening to us having the ability to admit our sinfulness. In a culture and everybody where everybody says, no, just praise and, and, and you know, just kind of encouragement. And I'm all for praise and encouragement. The Bible says encourage one another over and over again. Love one another. That's not wrong, but our basic need is to build upon this foundation that, that I have sinned and I fall short of the glory of God. But that Christ so loved me, God so loved me, that he clothed himself in flesh and he came. And that is not just one of the, one of the possibilities of getting right with God, but it's the only possibility of getting right with God. And the more that we build upon that foundation, we begin to see that this is a promise keeper. I will rise up and and I will gather you with you again in Galilee. It's huge, guys. He knows that they're going to fall away. Have you ever fooled yourself even for just maybe five seconds? I hope God didn't see that. Have you ever done that before? It was kind of silly. You know, I hope God didn't see that. He sees everything. That was what really kind of, um, if you want to say, scared the bejesus out of me when I was little, you know, when the pastor, he sees everything. I'm going, oh my goodness. Now, I wish that he would said it in a little bit more of a biblical manner than that, but that was probably maybe, you know, in one way you could say, man, I bet you were scarred for life. Or you could say, man, this was really helpful. This is a biblical truth. God sees everything. But here's the thing. He sees everything. Not once. Has your life escaped him? And yet this promise keeper says, I will rise again and I'll see you again. He knows their sin and yet he promises this reunion with them. Now look what happens next. Peter is going to have nothing to do with Jesus' prediction. Verse 29, and Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Confidence or arrogance. Would you say that there's kind of a fine line time sometimes between confidence and arrogance? And that some people don't know where that line is. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to be confident. I don't know that there's anything inherently biblically evil about confidence. 
I do think that there's something biblically evil about arrogance. So, so how do we determine what is just a confidence? Well, if we look at the New Testament, we do fit, see that we're to be a confident people. Do you know that the Bible says to be confident? In what? In Christ Jesus. Do you know the most familiar term describing Christians in the New Testament is not Christians? In Christ. In Christ. In Christ. This is the repetitive description of people who have come to know Jesus in the New Testament, that they're in Christ. There's our confidence. Not in, that's not a, a self-arrogance. And yet what we see here in Peter is kind of a, a self-arrogance. It's not just a confidence. And I'm strong and I won't do this. No, he says, because it's kind of judgmental. Even though they will fall away, I can see that. And I've been watching them for three years, Jesus. And you picked some really weak ones. It's kind of like the old bear story. You know, that if Brian and I are out there, oh, I shouldn't have picked Brian because he's so much faster. <laughs> but he doesn't have to worry about, you know, if, if the bear is chasing us, he doesn't have to worry really about being faster than the bear. He needs to be worried about being faster than me, right? And we know all that, that old joke. In a way, is that the way that we are to live our Christian lives? I mean, is this the biblical standard, guys? That, okay, it's not so much that I live, you know, in holiness and that, that I, I, I strive to live for Christ in my life. No, I just have to live a little bit better for you. If I can stay away from that adultery, that gambling, and that smoking, drinking thing, that somehow, okay, if that's the four big sins, I mean, that's at eight years old, that's what I heard. I'm pretty good. And that's where Peter is in this verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. In this moment of high emotion and passion, he can't see the reality of his sins. Now, here's a question. And I think I asked you this question back at Easter time years ago because we were looking at this text in an Easter sermon one time. On a scale of 1 to 10, how high or low would you rate Peter's level of sincerity. How sincere do you think he is in his own sincerity, in his own measure of his own mind, in his own intention? One being, oh, he's not sincere at all. These are just words. Ten being, he really believes this. Now look back at verse 29. Peter said to him, him being Christ, even though they all fall away, I will not. What number are you going to attach to that? Yeah, I think there's a 10, at least a 9. I think that he really is kind of in his mind. His own evaluation of his commitment to Christ, I think, is very, very high. Why? Because maybe in the past there have been times that he stayed the the line when everybody else did. Maybe there was occasions for him to even kind of form this kind of thinking. Sincerity-wise, I, th- I think he's probably a 10. He believes that he's up to the task. But in hours, he's going to fail. He's going to break this promise. Look at verse 30. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you. Now, how many of y'all grew up in King James Bible? Again, I'm, I'm showing my age and everything. And, and what, when instead of the word truly, in the King James, in the old King James, what did it say? Verily, verily. Verily, verily. And I just remember as eight-year-old, that's important. Man, 
One verily would be enough, but man, Jesus said two verilies. That's got to be important stuff right there. And that's, you know, we don't lose that in a modern translation. It just doesn't have that punch that verily, verily I say unto you. But that's what he says. He says, this is truth. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. When somebody confronts us with truth and gives us a second chance to kind of be honest, not only with them, but honest with ourselves, do we always take that opportunity? In politics, we have this term. Well, they doubled down. Have you heard that term? Politician will say something, and even when confronted with something that seems to be contrasting views, well, they doubled down that they were right. That's what Peter does here. He doubles down because look what happens. Christ comes back, not the first time, but the second time now. He says, look, I, truly, verily, verily, let me throw some King James at you, Peter. Let me kind of slap your face twice here and bring you back into reality. I, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So now Peter has an opportunity. Wow, he didn't say verily, verily the first time. He didn't say truly, but now that he's saying truly, I've come to my senses and now I see things as they ought to be. Is that what happens? Verse 31. But he said, what's the word? Emphatically. He didn't say, you know, I'm still kind of thinking this way. No, he says emphatically. If you went and you said something emphatically to somebody else, if your child said something emphatically to you, parents, do you say, man, bless you for your earnestness? If it's wrong, I mean, if it's a wrong thing, but they say it emphatically. I will not go clean my room. And they say it emphatically. You go, man, I respect you, man, you're taking a stand. And truly, truly, I say to you that you're not going to eat supper until you have that... No, I still, I double down. I am not going to go clean my room. We don't sit there and go, man, I just applaud your bravery there. If they're wrong, I can see a lot of you parents and I'm going, that would never happen in my house. <laughs> We'd be doing a funeral. <laughs> now you don't bless something that's wrong there. You, you correct it. And here Jesus gives an opportunity for him to to come into the right mind, we would say, a a true biblical understanding. And yet his response, verse 31, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Again, how sincere do you think he is in that statement? Eight, nine, or ten, easily, easily, eight, nine, or ten. Can you be emphatic? Can you be persuaded and be emphatically wrong and persuasively wrong? He's wrong, guys. He doubles down. He actually increases, if you want to say increases the bet. This is not going to happen, Jesus. In fact, now I just, I I raise you. Now I will die with you. I I double down on, on how I feel about this. He not only doesn't back off his original promise, but he 
promises more. Here's the problem. Three things that we see in Peter's life. And please don't see this as information about Peter, but will you ask God if these things could exist in your own heart and your mind today? In our own dilemma with sin and admitting fully to a holy God that we are a sinful people? First thing that we see that he was counting on his own superiority. In other words, there's a little bit of comparison going on. Even if the others fall, Jesus, I'm not. Have you ever seen somebody do something that would be considered wrong, sinful? And you say, I would never do that. I got my own sins, but I would never do that. And really, sincerely, we think that we never would. I mean, sincerely, we cannot imagine us ever doing that. And yet the reality is, except for the grace of God, there go I. This could really, really happen. Now, we don't imagine that any more than Peter imagined on that night that he could deny Christ three times. He can't even begin to grasp it, folks. So he's counting his own superiority. I I can see Thomas doing that. He's a doubter. (laughs) I can see, you know, Matthew doing it, you know. Got to watch those guys that used to be kind of working for the IRS or in accounting and, and all that. It, you know, once a thief, always a thief. He couldn't grasp that he could ever do that. So one of the problems that Peter had, one of the problems that we have in our lives is this idea of superiority when it comes to our own sinfulness. I, I imagine that we are just like Peter in that going, I can never imagine myself doing that. There are certain things that we might see somebody else doing or we hear a story or something like that. I would never be able to do that. And yet that attitude of superiority kind of leaves an openness there for, for us to kind of follow up this way. But the most vulnerable part of that is that we begin to do comparison shopping of sin in our lives. We are kind of pre-programmed in our humanity, guys, to... Give a number assignment to sin. That's a one. That's a two or three or four. That's a ten. And we might see ourselves kind of being vulnerable to a one through a five. Maybe on a really, really bad day, a six. God forbid a seven. But we can never see ourselves doing an eight, nine, or ten. Here's the problem. God never numbered and he never kind of... Now, consequences-wise, yeah, there are some things that we do that are not going to have the same level of consequences. But sin, a rebellion against God in his holiness, it's all a ten. Honestly, honestly, is that how your mind operates? doesn't. One of the hardest things to, to get in counseling a husband and wife when maybe the, the husband has looked at something that he shouldn't. He says, man, you know, that man I was wrong, I was wrong, I was wrong. Shouldn't have looked at that. But in his mind, it's a three or a four. And I actually had one guy one time, and I wanted to stop him. I wanted to go there and put like a pillow over his mouth. So he said, but it's not like, you know, I had an affair. And I'm going, that's not going to get you anywhere, buddy. <laughs> because you're painting as a three or four. I promise you, she says, this is a 10, this is a 10, this is a 10. 
Women, right? See, this natural kind of thing that we have, this natural kind of, okay, but it wasn't this. At least it wasn't this, honey. Well, it was to me. It was to me. Now, who gets to judge what it should be? Who gets to judge between you and I what we think it is on a scale? God or us? Does that make sense to you? Are you, are you clicking here? But isn't that such a natural way of thinking? And so this comparison, and we just kind of throw that in there? No, all have fallen, all have fallen short in sin and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not God. All of us. It's all a ten, guys. But my mind doesn't work that way. And if I can step with the ones, twos, and threes in my own mind, I may not be perfect, but I'm at least better than you. And this is where Peter, his first thing, he thinks his own superiority. Second thing, his, he count on his own ability to be sincere and, and trying hard. Sincerity wasn't the problem. Peter was full of passion. Um, he was feverish in his emotion. The problem was that Peter was a sinner. Answer this logically. And then answer it biblically. Hopefully both of those are going to be the same. (laughs) Sincerity, does it eliminate truth? Sincerity. If you really, really believe in a jolly old man at Christmas, I mean, you sincerely believe it, does it make it true? Now, I know some of you are going, well, kind of in that situation, yes. <laughs> no, I mean, you can be so sincere. You can be a thousand percent sincere. And if it's not true, it doesn't make it true. It doesn't automatically become true because this level of sincerity, man, he is so sincere that he was not going to get burned up in that fire when he let that match. And, uh, man, my goodness, I, I found out that even when you're sincere, you then, you know, put gasoline all, so, all over yourself and light a match. Guess what happens? Sincerity really doesn't matter. I, I mean, let's not be funny with it, but let's say that you all of a sudden believe that you could fly. And so you believe that you can fly. And so, Jake, you, you're convinced you can fly. You, you made some wings, okay? Had some extra time at work. You made some wings. and I, I can fly. I believe that I can fly, logically, and, and I'm sincere about that. So you tell Kayla, you know, I, I believe I can fly. And so you go to this big cliff, and there's a moment there she's going, I don't care how much you believe it. You're not going to be able to fly. But you believe with all your heart. So you get back there, you get back from that cliff, and you take a running start, and you jump. And you start flapping these wings that you made. And you find out that gravity took over. You can be 100% sincere, sincere and you can be 100% wrong. Sincerity doesn't invade truth. Third thing, he was counting on his own ability, his own strength. Was Peter a strong man? What we consider a strong man. Yeah. Do you get a picture of Peter as this kind of like, Oh, I'll, I'll take one of those two, please. Or 
Get out of the way, James and John. That one's mine. I mean, if there's one biscuit left on the plate, do you see Peter going, yours? Oh, I, I didn't want to. No, I see Peter as the guy going, get out of the way, you little... This is a strong man. This is a man that's big. This is a man that's kind of active. And, and so he's got this mindset. That's probably worked. Has that more than likely worked for Peter throughout his life? Yeah. Look what happens, verse 66 through 68. And as um, Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. This is the third time that he denies Christ. This time, why, why would Mark tell us that it was a servant girl um, he's trying to show her place in society. She was young. She was a servant. She was a girl. And uh, in that society, in that culture, you don't have to agree with it, you know, as far as the girl part, but in the servant part, but or the young part. But in that culture, I think Mark is pointing out this little girl, this servant girl, has no social impact. This is. This is not some authoritative person coming in. Oh, I believe that you were with that Galilean. You were with that Nazarene. No, this is a girl that you would dismiss anything that she said if you disagreed with. And yet she comes. I think you were with the Nazarene. No, it wasn't. I don't even understand what you're saying. And the rooster crows. So, Pastor, I, I get it. Okay, so we're supposed to admit that we're sinners. But what about our own self-worth and self-esteem? Can I challenge you with something that may be contrary? I'm a firm believer and in, in, in that we do have that self-esteem and that we are to, to encourage one another. And I want to encourage my kids and, and different things like that. I don't know that there's anything inherently evil about it in itself if it's in the proper perspective, okay? So please don't get me wrong and misunderstand what I mean by this. But my true self-worth is when I understand what a sinner I was, and yet God so loved me so much that he would give his own son. Creator God would give you his self. He would clothe himself in flesh. Where can I get more self-worth than that right there, guys? Where can I get more definition of what God thinks about me than when I know that I was this rebellious sinner, not doing ones, twos, and threes on the sin scale, but tens, and yet he loved me, and he chose me, and he opened my eyes to the beauty of the gospel, and he saved me. That's why the New Testament describes the Christian as in Christ. And this is where our worth comes from. But God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. What are you trusting this morning, guys? What are you trusting this morning for this gap? Number one, do you acknowledge that there's a gap between you and holy God? And when you acknowledge that it's a pretty big gap, it's not just like, man, I just barely missed the mark. If we understand this gap, what are you counting on this morning 
Hey, this is going to sound so old school. If you were standing before God this morning and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? And I'm not trying to be trite or trivial with that. I'm trying to be really relevant with that. If he asked you, how do you bridge this gap between your sinfulness and my holiness? He gives one answer, one answer, one answer. And that answer is actually not a fact, not a point of information. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ, his son. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not some cleaned up version, not some kind of polished after effect. No, why I was still in the midst of my sin, Christ so loved me. God so loved me that he gave his life for me. Folks, it's in this um, uh, place in our mind that I really believe that we've built a biblical foundation for dealing with our own sinfulness. We're not counting on our own sincerity. I mean, I really love Jesus. When I sing that song before, man, I was singing really loud because, you know, it was about loving Jesus. And, man, I, I really felt I had some goosebumps. And I felt really, really like in love with Jesus during that song. Wonderful. I'm not going to diminish that. But guys, does that carry you on to Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday? Has that led to transformational living in your life? That feeling? And your own ability to be sincere? Miss Vicky just went to a, a wonderful, one of the most amazing kind of uh, com- conferences or anything. And, I mean, just powerful song, speaker, Boom, boom, boom. I could tell when you got back, you were here on this high. And you've just remained on that high ever since, right? <laughs> and one way we could say yes, because we, we know that truth. But what a challenge. Every, everyday life trying to bring you down. Because feelings are, there's nothing wrong with feelings. But have they led to transformational lives? Our own superiority or superiority, that is our comparison to other people, our own sincerity, our own ability just to be strong. None of that is sufficient for this gap. Guys, there was only one thing sufficient for this gap. His name is Jesus. And so this morning we're, we're going to actually sing a song. Since this has been like old school day, I was just old, like old fired up preaching. We're going to sing a song this morning that... Uh, uh, again, they used to have the Billy Graham Crusades, just as I am. Uh, but, but recently they kind of added a, a, a kind of a, a little course to go with that that I think I really like. And it's, it's this admittance, I am broken, I'm wounded. and uh, But I come in this brokenness, I come in this woundedness just as I am. I think that's a powerful, powerful song because it, it, it acknowledges I don't really have anything to offer you, God, <laughs> except for my woundedness and my sinfulness and all this, but I come and you accept me and you give your son for me. And so as we sing this song this morning, I, I pray that uh, that we would realize our sin. I'm not going to apologize whatsoever for desiring my children and my grandchildren to know their sinfulness. I mean, we can talk about it. If you disagree, we can have hopefully respectful, you know, conversation about it. But I, I want my my grandchildren to know that so that maybe God so ordains 
that early in their life they would come. I come needy. I come broken. I come wounded. And I come to the sufficient one that you've provided, God. I pray that that would happen in the lives of my grandchildren early in life so that they could live transformed lives based on that foundation. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. And Father, this day, when I see these three things in Peter's life, I see every one of those in my life, Father. Well, at least I'm not doing that. Father, I, I see that sometimes I equate my own sincerity with somehow my own sacredness. Father, that I depend upon my own strength. Maybe years of studying the word and seminary and all those kind of things to say, okay, that's got to count for something. Father, it counted for nothing. It counts for nothing, Father, in the face of my sin. And I I, I don't want to believe that. I don't want to agree with that. And yet, Father, your word lovingly tells me that. And Father, that would be the worst news ever if it wasn't for the good news of Christ, that you sent a sufficient one, a perfect one. And so, Father, will you transform my life, my mind and my heart this morning, that I would be able to cry out to you, Father, this day I come to you broken and wounded. And I thank you for Christ. In the depth of my need, you provide it for me the sufficiency of a of a savior a loving savior thank you father and now father may, may we glory in that this day we love you jesus and we pray this in the power of your finished work jesus amen Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.